As I talk to other church leaders across the world, I'm very sad to hear of how many divisions there are in churches regarding our response to COVID. I was talking recently to David Campbell, and I felt that he had some very clear arguments from scripture that needed to be heard. So this morning is going to be rather unusual because instead of our regular sermon, it's going to be a Zoom conversation between me and David. So I have David here. Uh, David, at least two of the New Testament churches, and I'm thinking of Roman Corinth, faced some divisions over the issue of what believers were free to do and uh, whether the exercise of this freedom um, should be restricted by other people who are maybe at a different place on their faith journey. I wonder if you can shed some light on this and how it might help us in current issues that churches are facing regarding demands for freedom. And so my feeling, Andrew, is that um, we follow the one who laid all of his rights down. He, Though he was in the form of God, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, he took upon himself the form of a bond servant or a slave um, in order that uh, salvation might come to us. So we're called to carry the cross and follow in Jesus' footsteps. So wherever Christians are found um, advocating for their own rights and freedoms, there's something a little out of whack. It's not to say we shouldn't be advocating for other people's rights and freedoms. It's just we're not supposed to, be, we're, we're supposed to be a people who are prepared to sacrifice on behalf of other people. Um, and in church, if it can't be worked out in church, then we haven't got a hope of being salt and light in the world. So let's look at Romans 14 and 15, and I'm not going to read the whole uh, text here, but I'll read excerpts from it. He says, as for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may, may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And then he goes on and, and gives a similar principle in relation to some people observing certain days, which is probably Sabbaths and Jewish feasts and so on, whereas others feel that's no longer necessary uh, because of what Christ has done. And so um, then as we get down to verse 13, uh, he says he comes to a really important point. Let, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And he concludes, uh, let's pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Everything is clean. Yes, it is. But it's wrong 
for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. And so uh, in those churches that you mentioned, uh, and we find it recorded in Romans 14 and 15, and again in um, 1 Corinthians 8, uh, 8 and 10, 8, 9 and 10, really, um, uh, we find that uh, the churches are divided over um, you know, one group of people, for instance, who thinks that uh, you can eat anything you want because they've interpreted Jesus' uh, teaching, his interpretation of the Old Testament. They've taken that at face value. Jesus declared all foods clean. The gospel says that. And so they say, well, that's the way it is. And, you know, that's what Christ died for. And we're going to live that way. But meanwhile, there's another group of people in the church for whatever reason, they're probably of a Jewish background, Jewish Christians. And in the church at Rome, anyway, there seems to have been a Gentile majority and a Jewish minority. And the Gentiles seem to have been maybe trampling a little bit. The members of the church who were Gentile were kind of trampling a little bit over the sensitivities of uh, the Jewish believers in the church. And of course, the Jewish believers in the church um, came with this lifelong conviction that, for instance, to eat pork was offensive to God, and that was a terrible thing you just didn't do. And for whatever reason, the truth of the gospel hadn't fully percolated through to them. So you might think that Paul would have come in like a ton of bricks on these Jewish believers and said, you know, uh, guys, you, this is immaturity. You need to get with the program here and, uh, you know, go out and have some bacon with your breakfast. But actually, he didn't. He came down like a ton of bricks on what he calls the strong believers. In other words, the ones who had a more profound understanding or more complete understanding of the gospel. And he said, look, he said, the issue isn't eating of meat. Um, that's not the issue. The issue is that these people are in such a place that if they're forced to do something or if they're encouraged to do something that actually offends their conscience, it might cause them to um, lose their faith in some way or to become weakened in their faith. It may cause them great spiritual harm. And so your responsibility, actually, you, you're free in Christ. You know that. but you don't need to um, exercise all the rights and liberties of your freedom outwardly if it is going to cause damage to the people around you. Um, you're, you, no one can take your freedom away. If you don't eat meat or pork, let's say, or if that's the issue, if you don't eat pork, um, you know, then what? that's just a small sacrifice. You haven't lost your freedom. You haven't compromised you've just refused to exercise outwardly the inner freedom that you have in the greater goal of loving your brother and your sister around you so um so that's sort of the gist of the situation that he's dealing with in first corinthians uh, chapters 8 and 10 um the issue is it, not exactly the same but somewhat similar uh and here He's, he talks about food offered to idols in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. 
And then he goes on and says, as to the eating of food offered to idols, verse four, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So he's he's acknowledging the fact that we don't believe in idols, although we do believe there are demonic powers behind them. However, not all possess this knowledge. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now, what's happening here is that um, in uh, it was a common practice in Greek cities such as Corinth, um, the meat, uh, the butchers operated in idol temples because the, the meat was offered as part of idolatrous rituals and so on. Uh, but then it kind of passed through those rituals and then it was just sold. It was almost like there were restaurants right there in the idol temples or uh, the meat went out to the meat market and was sold there. So some Christians are exercising their freedom by going into the restaurant in the idol temple and eating meat that has been offered to an idol on the basis that, well, we don't believe in idols. So what harm is there? But there are other people who are weak in that. They've been involved in idolatry, and they just can't get past the fact that this seems to be a wrong thing to do, even being on the premises of an idol temple. And so he continues, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 8, but take care that this right of yours, that's their freedom, the freedom of the strong, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, that's your sort of superior revelation of your freedom. This weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. And then he comes to exactly the same conclusion, though the context is a little bit different. He comes to exactly the same conclusion as in Romans in 1 Corinthians 8 and 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. In Romans, he just seems to be dealing with um, people who come from a Jewish background and it's offensive to them to break the kosher regulations and rules and so on. In Corinth, he deals with the situation of actually uh, the location that you eat it's not just eating meat but you're eating meat in an idol temple and it's not necessarily people that come from a jewish background uh that are offended it's people who come from a idol worshippers background so it could be the opposite situation so there's a, a minority group of people within the church who were very heavily into idol worship and um their faith just isn't strong enough to withstand going into an idol temple it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like if we had so, uh, some folk within the church who had a real addiction issues or were alcoholics, let's say, or had that problem in their past, they come to Christ and they go to your house and you're drinking wine or beer. And you think to yourself, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with this. I'm not getting drunk or anything like that. However, it, while it may be fine for you, that other person, it's not fine for them. And they may say, well, if it's, it's, uh, this is kind of uh, uh, confusing to me because this, you know, drinking beer or alcohol or whatever form of alcohol was something that uh, I associate with 
you know, a, a disaster in my own life and with something that was, a, a, was awful. And now I've come to Christ and my, I have a new life and this is wonderful, but I come into the church and there's people doing this same thing that ruined my life. And of course, people's fuses get blown and they don't understand where things are at. And so Paul's solution to that is, yes, theoretically, as a strong, mature believer who is not going to become addicted to alcohol, you just enjoy a glass of wine with with dinner or occasional beer or whatever. Um, Well, why should my freedom be interfered with uh, by this person? But the issue is the effect of your actions, the effect of the exercise of your freedom on the other person. That's what's far more important than the exercise of your freedom itself. And that's the issue, Andrew, I think, that a lot of us are facing today. We get hung up on the exercise of our freedom and where it's we perceive it to be infringed upon, and we've lost sight of what the impact of our uh, Um, conduct is the exercise of our freedom on the people around us. And I can apply that um, to a a conversation that I had the other day regarding the um, thorny and controversial issue of vaccination, which in general, I've tried to stay away from. But a church leader who uh, is bivocational, he's a leader in a church in North Carolina, and um, he is a a full-time, he's a white-collar worker, he's a scientist, I think, in a a company and works there for an office with his fellow workers. And uh, so he hadn't been vaccinated, and he was asking my opinion on this. And uh, I don't offer my opinion unless I'm asked, but so I gave him my opinion and we talked about it for a few minutes. And I said, you know, I said, the issue really here isn't so much uh, whether you get vaccinated or not. He wasn't, he was what we call vaccine hesitant. He was thinking, well, I wish it had been tested a little bit more. You know, my kids are all vaccinated and so on. He wasn't anti-vax. And I said, the issue isn't really uh, that. The issue is uh you know, what is the impact of your conduct and the people that you're working with? You know, because they all know that you're a leader in a church. And if there are people in your office as co-workers that are very fearful of COVID, even though you may think, well, that's a bit exaggerated, but nevertheless, it's real. They are fearful. That's a fact. Then if you come in and to them, you pose a threat to their health and possibly their life. And you're coming in and exercising your freedom uh, as a Christian. What is that going to do to your witness to Christ? I said, that's the issue. And I said, if on the other hand, nobody in your office genuinely cares uh, one way or the other, you know, they're young and healthy and aren't really worried about COVID or whatever, then that's that isn't a factor uh you still have to make up your own mind whether it's right to get vaccinated or not um and what impact your conduct may have in other scenarios such as say in the church where you may be intermingling with elderly people or whatever but as far as your place of employment is concerned it doesn't really make any difference so um 
you know, the idea is that we have to think about the impact of our actions on people around us, even if they're not Christians. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't make any difference. You can't blame people for being fearful or wherever they're at. The fact is that is where they're at. And the fact is God has called us to serve and to love those people. And that is far more of a priority in the gospel than for us to be able to exercise what we perceive to be our own rights, if that all makes sense to you. That's really good. I think that's very clear. Um, so uh, do, do you think Christians should be at the forefront of, of demanding rights in our society? Well, see, that's the point. I mean, uh, I don't think we should be at the forefront of demanding our own rights. Yes. Um, I think that uh, we should be at the forefront of asking for rights for people who can't advocate for themselves, which is why I've been such a strong advocate of the pro-life movement, because who is more defenseless than the unborn child? And so I don't have a problem being militant with advocating for the rights of unborn children. I'm not advocating for my rights because I'm already born. Um, but I, I am interested in advocating for their rights because they need people to stand up for them so that they can live. Uh, and I think that's a, a really very clear example. I find it very, very, very hard. I was talking with a pastor in California the other day on this topic. How can you reconcile faith in Jesus Christ with being pro-abortion. I, I can't do it, you know, uh, because it's such a fundamental principle. Uh, it's a Holocaust. But, you know, that may be clear, but then there's all sorts of other issues out there. It's why Christians have historically been in the forefront of social justice movements. Uh, the um, campaign against slavery was waged by evangelical Christians. Um, social reforms, say in the United Kingdom, uh, in terms of uh, uplifting the poor, were waged by Christians. And um, that's why, because it's part of our biblical mandate to advocate on behalf of people who can't advocate for themselves. Um, so uh, we know freedom is not the highest human goal. Because um, free, if every person were perfectly free to do what they wanted, um, our freedom would soon butt heads against the freedom of the next person and we'd have chaos. But we do want to define freedom as the ability to live um, as a child of God and dignity, with dignity, worth and value and so on, whether people are professing Christians or whether they're not. And we want to or we should be. Um, we should be doing everything we can uh, in the facilitation of that sort of cause in whatever way it shows up. I mean, my mother is now with the Lord back in the 1960s, developed a heart for the developmentally handicapped who are then called mentally retarded and down, down syndrome children when they were locked away in institutions and nobody cared. She did it because she was a Christian. 
and uh, advocated on their behalf. And so that to me is the kind of thing we can all find ways in our own day-to-day life of putting that into practice. I love that. So we're, we're showing our freedom or our love for freedom by advocating for those who are not free. Exactly. So um, is there any way that our outward status can take away our freedom in Christ? Well, I, I, I don't believe it can. And the, if you read the stories of those that have been suffered or in prison uh, for their faith, if you go to the Gospels, you know, and Paul appears before King Agrippa uh, and Bernice, his half-sister, and uh, Felix, the Roman governor, and uh, he preaches the gospel to them. And and uh, then he says, well, I, I, I would that you became like me. I want I wish that you would all become like me, except for these chains that he was wearing. And so uh, he was free. Uh, he had chains on, but he was free. And uh, no one, uh, I mean, if we believe that God is sovereign and God directs our steps, then even if our outward um, liberty, the exercise of our freedom is curtailed, it, nothing can take us away from the love of Christ and from the true spiritual eternal freedom uh, that he's given us. And of course, that everything always winds up in Revelation sooner or later when it comes to me anyway. Um, but that is a part of a fundamental message of the book of Revelation is that, uh, you know, he, he's writing to Christians who are under very enormous pressure to compromise with the social and economic system in which they live, which is shot through with idolatry, Caesar worship, injustice, and so on. And he's saying to these people, you know, you're free. You're re- in your relationship with Christ. Nobody can touch you. Um even if you die for your faith, or even if you suffer economic consequences for your faith, um, then uh, it, it, it's inconsequential in the big picture because the reward that you will receive in the presence of God is far greater. And if you choose um, to renounce your faith or dilute your faith or walk away from your faith in return for whatever paltry rewards this world can give, that's a very foolish strategy. You know, you, we, we, we give up what we can't keep uh, to gain what we can't lose. And I think it was Jim Elliott that said that not long before he himself was martyred on the mission field. We give mm-hmm. up what we, we can't keep to gain what we, we can't lose. Uh, and that requires a biblical perspective on life for, for anyone to be able to do that. The letters to the seven churches, this, the, the numbers are, are all symbolic in Revelation. Every number is symbolic, but significant. And seven is the number of God and completion. So the, the fact that there are seven churches written to and not six and not eight uh, is indicative of the fact that it's, they're God's church and they're the universal church. So in other words, they're representative and they include us. So whatever is written to those seven churches in Revelation is applicable to us today same as any other letter because revelation is a pastoral letter people don't realize it, but it is a pastoral letter just like romans 1 corinthians or whatever so the what's written to those seven churches in chapters two and three of revelation is um relevant for us today and applicable for us today and uh you know one of the churches has had someone martyred in it 
Uh, other people are um, suffering economically for their faith, and there's references in Revelation to not being able to buy and sell. Uh, if you are a follower of Christ, if you have the mark of Christ on you, uh, which is the seal of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, um, if you're a Christian, in other words, um, you can expect to be persecuted socially and economically. You may even lose your life. They were being pressured and forced into emperor worship. Um, and the way they organized their economic system in uh, in Asia Minor, which is today Turkey, was that everyone had to belong to a, um, a guild, depending on whatever occupation you were in. And uh, you could call it a, a trade union if you wanted to, but it, or professional association, but it, but it included everybody from doctors to carpenters and everybody in between. You couldn't function and hold a job in society unless you were a member. And so the Romans came in and they mandated emperor worship. And they said, well, that's that's great. Every one of these guilds will have to hold so many days a year of emperor worship. And if you don't participate, then you're out. And of course, if you're out, you can you'll die because and starve and sell your family because you can't earn a living anymore. And that's what the Christians were being threatened with their their loss of freedom. Um, but Christ is saying to them, I've given you a true inner freedom that no one can ever take away from you. So even if you suffer in this life, even if you lose your life and have no external worldly freedom left at all, you can never lose the freedom that really counts. And that's the perspective. It gives you and me a perspective today. And that's why it bothers me when I see Christians out there parading around and, and, and talking about their rights and freedoms. That's why it bothers me, Andrew. There's something in the picture that just isn't right. And it gets clouded by debates over vaccines and masks and things like this, which aren't really the issue. The issue is what conduct is God calling me as a Christian to take that will not offend and upset my fearful non-Christian neighbor or my fearful um, co-member of a congregation who may not share my own opinions. Uh, we need to kind of stuff our own opinions. And uh, it doesn't mean that we accept the opinions of others around us. Uh, it simply means that we take into account the fact that those are the opinions they have. And we have to tailor our conduct accordingly. If they're going to listen to us about Christ, um, well, let's put it this way. They're not going to listen if we do things that are deeply offensive to them. Great. That's great. That's great. So um, uh, if we can just sum things up then, um, what, uh, what, what practically speaking would you, if you just could put it into like a, a one or two sentences, how should a Christian behave Christian believes that they're free in Christ. How should they behave um, in in a way that shows love? Because you you made the comment that um, it's the law of Christ is the law of love. So we we always have to be putting ourselves in the position of the other person, and uh, it's such a basic thing to do, but we have to try and maybe ask God to help us, just show us. How 
where is the other person at and what is the impact of our conduct on them? Whether it's in church, whether it's at the office, whether it's at, at university, whether it's our next door neighbor, what is the impact of our conduct going to be on them from their perspective? What is their perspective? Their perspective is more important than my perspective. Even if their perspective is wrong, that is what is determining their attitude toward me. How can I witness the Christ? I don't want to offend people in things that have nothing to do with eternity um, so that they don't give their life to Christ as a result of my insisting on my own personal preferences. Well, thank you, David. That was really helpful to see the relevance of those biblical passages to our situation today. And as I think, uh, as we close, I think we need to be clear about three things. The first is that we're not talking about what we believe about masks and vaccines and what policies we should vote for, but how we behave. Paul didn't tell the Christians who felt there was nothing wrong with eating certain foods that they had to conform their beliefs to the weaker brethren, but they had to behave in a way that demonstrated love. So the first thing is it's not beliefs, but behavior. The second is we're not talking about our beliefs about the limits of government control over our lives. Those are important, but different issues that we should talk about as Christians and might have honest disagreements on. So it's not about our beliefs. It's not about government control. And the third thing is that if something is sinful, then love does not ignore it, but calls it out as offensive to God. There are some Christians today who say, oh, well, love just covers everything. And, you know, we just ignore anything that's wrong because love will do that. But no, there is absolute right and wrong. And we, if something is sinful, then it's offensive to God. Uh, but in all of this, we behave in a way that loves others sacrificially. Thanks again, David, for bringing this to us today. And maybe you can close in prayer for us. Father, these things are uh, hard for us to deal with and figure out like so many, many things that we have walked through as a society and as Christian believers in these last 18 months. Help us by the gift of your Holy Spirit to gain wisdom and sensitivity. Bring good out of the restrictions that we have all had to walk through. Help us, Father, to be sensitive to the needs of those around us more so than to our own needs and help us to walk more perfectly in the way of love than we've ever done before Uh, and lord may all of this be to the glory of your name so that when people look at us they see something of jesus so please let your blessing be upon new life church and everyone who listens to this uh talk uh and i pray that you use it to build us up and set us free. In Jesus' name, amen.